Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. President-elect Joe Biden won't be in the White House for another month and a half, but when he arrives, he'll have to contend with multiple policies the Trump administration has pushed through since Election Day. Coming up, we'll talk with ProPublica reporter Isaac Arnsdorf about ProPublica's reporting that tracks Trump's so-called midnight regulations. First, we welcome back a Connecticut college student who got great news in November. Esma Rahimiar is a college senior at Southern Connecticut State University, and she's the school's first Rhodes Scholar. She's the daughter of Afghan immigrants who grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut. She now lives in Trumbull. Esma joins us now where we live. Esma, welcome back and congratulations. Thank you so much, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I think I spoke with you back in July and we were talking about what it was like to uh, finish up your uh, college uh, studying uh, through the pandemic. And then you got this great news in November. So what was your reaction when you heard? Um, it still feels quite surreal. So I was in my brother's room, which is the room I'm in right now, the only quiet room that we have in the house. Um, and I found out that I had won the roads about two Saturdays ago. Um, and I remember not even waiting to run into the living room to tell the rest of my family. I just grabbed my cell phone and called my mom and told her the news. Um, and to have this happen in the pandemic. So to have my life shape in such formative ways from the parameters of my household um, is I think unprecedented, but it's it's surreal. And also um, I'm very grateful that I have the opportunity uh, to be able to do this despite everything else going on in our world. So I have to ask when you told your mom, what did she say? Um, not many words. I think it was an incoherent uh, reaction on the other end and it was rather incoherent on mine. Um, a lot of tears from both of our ends and there's still some uh, when we've received calls from our relatives explaining the significance of this moment for my community as a whole. Mm. Now, most people have heard of the Rhodes uh, Scholarship Program, but tell us what that means for you and what you'll be doing because you're, I believe, one of 32 that were selected. Yes, I am. And so at Oxford, um, where I'll be receiving a full ride for my graduate studies, I'm hoping to pursue two master's degrees. So one in forced migration and refugee studies and the other in global governance and diplomacy um, with the ultimate objective of returning to, to the United States and pursuing either a law degree, a doctoral degree in comparative politics or international development, or perhaps both. There's wonderful programs that offer a joint JD PhD, and I think it would be nice to situate my more advanced studies within a multilateral context as provided by uh, the British education system. Hmm. Now, I mentioned uh, at the start that you are the daughter of Afghan immigrants, and I wanted to find out a little bit more about your upbringing and, and how that may have played a role in what you want to study at Oxford. Everything that I am now and everything that I hope to be, I attribute to my parents and the way that they've raised me. 
Um, as the first American-born child to Afghan immigrants, I've had such a yearning to be seen. Um, and that yearning has manifested in so many ways throughout my life, um, whether that was when I was younger, wearing the largest red bows that I could find and setting up on coffee tables in the middle of crowded rooms uh, to speak my mind. And then years later, trading red bows for microphones and podiums and speaking out about the significance of history and politics beyond the abstract and the nebulous, but rendered personal um, and direct. So concepts such as war and development and peace building, again, they often seem quite macro level and by extension, they often seem quite nebulous and impersonal. But for me, war, politics, international development, the fields that I want to study, they've always felt very personal. And so I've shaped my voice um, as a tapestry of sorts, weaving together the stories that my parents have raised me on, um, stories about wartime, but also stories about peacetime. And I've also collected other details, not only about Afghanistan, but about our country too. And my situatedness in this liminal space between two worlds has allowed for me to weave all of this together in a voice that's distinctly my own, but in a voice that I hope to use uh, to bring together the world of my parents and my heritage and also the world that I live in now um, as an American. And I've realized that those worlds are, aren't nearly as disparate as we often think that they are. So tell me more about your family's story. I understand your parents left Afghanistan as refugees. So tell us why and when did they move to the United States? My parents left Afghanistan as refugees as a result of the Soviet occupation. Um, so that occurred at the very end of the 70s up until um, the late 80s. And that was one of the largest refugee influxes that we've ever seen. Um, and so growing up, many of my childhood stories pertain to watching Rose of empty desks increasing in length and then an empty desk being all that commemorates a person, a person who is vividly and complexly alive. Another life is reduced to a desk or a pair of sneakers never worn um, or a ledger line. I study war crimes now as part of my senior thesis and oftentimes I run my fingers along the names of people who have died and they don't even leave so much as a residue of ink upon my fingertips despite the fact that they were a person as complex as I am. Um, and so that legacy of loss simultaneously juxtaposed with life and vibrant life rendered through detail um, has always haunted me. And I've, I've been very deliberate about cultivating my own voice and my own aspirations around ensuring that not only um, we work on transitional justice processes, so how do we ensure that when one regime transitions to another, that we don't confer impunity upon individuals who have um, wrenched lives away from others, but also how do we facilitate um, refugee and immigrant transitions into the United States, given the legacies that they shoulder. Mm -hmm. So then tell me more about your parents' personal experience as refugees and how uh, that speaks to you, Esma. Mm -hmm. Uh, my parents spent quite some time as refugees in Pakistan and then ultimately came to the United States in 1997. And then I was born two years later. Um, so my parents' experience as refugees um, involved both of my younger, raising both of my older brothers. Um, they were both quite young when they moved to the United States. So their memories of being refugees are not very distinct. Um, but my family was very fortunate to have um, my extended family around them. So it was a community that they brought from Afghanistan. And so even though they needed to leave behind photo albums and all of the little things that you don't think about bringing with you when you have to leave overnight, um, they had the warmth of community around them. And then when they came to the United States, um, they left their extended family behind too. So I don't have any extended family in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the challenge of being a refugee um, was 
not alleviated, but perhaps, um, again, juxtaposed with the warmth of, of community around you. And then here in the United States, my family has had um, many privileges, but that warmth of community, I think, is something that we feel very palpably, even though it's been quite some time since my family moved to the United States and became citizens. You're hearing Esma Rahimiar here on Where We Live. She's a senior at Southern Connecticut State University and the school's first Rhodes Scholar. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Esma, I understood you grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut. So what was that like for you? Again, you talked about your parents leaving a community behind and, and starting over. And I'm just curious about what it was like growing up in Fairfield. Mm-hmm. Um, in Fairfield, we were one of the only, if not the only, Afghan family. And so my identity is multifaceted, as identities are. So being Afghan is one part of it, but it also does percolate into other aspects of who I am, including the cultivation of my voice. So as I alluded to earlier, um, when I was younger, I had such a yearning to be seen, particularly when I was really little, before I had become self-conscious about all of the ways in which I'm already hyper-visible. And so as I grew older, and I became more self-conscious, I think I folded into myself. And I remember there was a period of time in middle school and even early high school where I would either not go to the cafeteria at all, or when I would go to the cafeteria, I would bring like a big uh, set of textbooks with me uh, so that I could read those and get lost in that world instead of speaking to the people around me. Um, but there came a point where I realized I have to cultivate my voice. I would be remiss if I didn't. And I need to cultivate it um, by weaving together the stories and the legacy that I've been raised with, but also the experiences that I get to live through every single day. I'm a collector of detail in some sense of the word. And when we get to see humanity um, in its unabashed form and we get to collect that and shape our voice by way of it, we forge our voice um, on the premise of compassion. And that's something that I've always strived to do. Um, and I think if I hadn't felt so alone in certain periods of my life, I wouldn't have been as deliberate about the shaping of my voice. And I don't think I would have used my voice in the ways I have in the years since. Hmm. And so tell me about that moment uh, when uh, you found uh, confidence, Esma. I mean, many of us uh, can remember our, our years in uh, junior high and high school where you know, that self-consciousness comes through. But what was the moment where, again, you felt that, uh, that you could build on, on your upbringing and who you are uh, to have that confidence? Yeah, um, I think it's such an excellent question. And I've gotten asked this question quite a few times and I tried to rack my brain. Was there one moment that served as the catalyst for everything else or one moment where I felt that my striving to be seen had really um, been fulfilled? And I think the truth is um, I'm always afraid and I always have been afraid. I think we all are. Um, but over time, it's not as if my hands have stopped shaking. So I'll get behind podiums, my hands are shaking, and then I'll put my hands down um, beside the speech that I'm reading, and they'll still be shaking, but I can speak. And it's not speaking in spite of the shaking, but perhaps it's speaking because of it, speaking because you know that fear is the other side of passion and we're afraid of things when we care about them and being seen can be scary. Um, but that's why it matters because it creates necessary tension and it elicits necessary vulnerability. So I think for me, um, the moment wasn't even so much when my voice stopped shaking or my hands stopped shaking, but it was when I could get up behind that podium with the shaking and speak um, because I know the significance of my doing so.
Mm. I remember a public speaking teacher in high school, Esma, who told me something similar. Uh, before you speak uh, to an audience, you should be a little nervous. You should have a little fear inside you um, because then, uh, you know, your true self really does come out and it's uh, more natural. So tell me about your your time at Southern. Again, uh, you are the university's first ever Rhodes Scholar. And I'm just curious about uh, your education at Southern and how the community has welcomed you. The community has shaped me um, in a multitude of ways and what a privilege it is to step into my future with their hope vested in me, with the hope of the people that have shaped me. Um, But at Southern, I've had four hour conversations with my advisor, not only about my academic aspirations and my career goals, but about life itself. And for instance, how to navigate perfectionism without losing your sense of self or how to ensure that the vulnerability that you covet is something that you're comfortable expressing um, in every sense of the word. I've walked into professors' offices and they've made me a cup of green tea and we've sat down and we've talked about Nietzschean nihilism or pantheism or these philosophical concepts that I debate with my classmates um, within the context of the classroom and then take outside of that and it spills over in hallway conversations and walking all the way to the other end of campus without even realizing it because I was so invested in what I was talking about with someone. So my point in saying this being that there are brilliant minds um, everywhere irrespective of how well-known an institution is. Um, I'm not an anomaly for Southern. I know many brilliant minds um, who have accomplished just as much, if not more, than I have been able to. Um, And the depth of their aspirations are not impacted um, by the realities of their circumstances. But I hope that we always remember that these minds exist and that we support them so that even though the depth of their aspirations aren't impacted, perhaps the likelihood of their realization is. And I want to ensure that we do all that we can uh, to support these students and the faculty that have shaped me um, in so many ways. That's a really important point, Esma, that you said there are brilliant minds everywhere. When we think about uh, the the status we give uh, to people who go to Ivy League schools or have a certain background, and you're talking about the hard work and dedication and just the, the intellect around you at a state school. Mm, yes. Um, and I tutor students as well. So I'm a tutor of writing, philosophy, and first-year experience. Um, and so what this involves is working with students who work harder than anyone I've ever seen. So these are students who stay up until 4 a.m. to translate their assignments because they're immigrants to the United States. Um, students who work three jobs to support their families but still schedule regular appointments with me to make sure that the placement of semicolons and commas in their essays is correct. And to give you one anecdote, um, mm-hmm. a little while ago, one of my students who never turns her camera on. So we've met virtually. I've been tutoring her virtually for several months now. Um, She turned her camera on for the first time and she showed me a finger painting that her daughter had made. And it was just a a very vibrant green mess. You couldn't render anything from it. (laughs) Um, But she told me, I had been so worried about raising a daughter in this country, but how could I be now? Look at how freely she paints. Um, And she's a student and she's raising her two children in a country um, that no one in her family has navigated before. And it's such a privilege to help her find her voice. Uh, when, when many Americans think of uh, people from Afghanistan, uh, they think of the most recent uh, war after uh, 9-11. But what does your achievement mean for the Afghan-American community, Esma, and what it means to achieve as an Afghan woman? I think um, 
It means many different things to many different people, but if I had to encapsulate it in one sentiment, perhaps it would be that we can go out into the world and aspire as large as we'd like to without needing to compromise who we are, without needing to compromise our culture, our religion, and the values that um, this heritage has instilled within us. Um, and I think being able to achieve at the highest level, it's not validation because I've always felt validated in my heritage, but it's recognition of values that often get overlooked or often get lost um, in the blare of headlines. It's recognition that we can be as we are within the world. And my little cousins who have called me um, and who look up to me with their large unblinking eyes for them to know that we can go out into the world as Afghan Muslim women and achieve what we want to achieve as we are is incredibly moving. Um, and I hope that my winning the roads can remind them that the sky is the limit for us and for people like us. Mm. When we started talking, Esma, I asked you what your mother's reaction was to you uh, being named a Rhodes Scholar. And I'm wondering when we think, when you think about the journey your parents took, about the opportunities uh, even your mother left behind, uh, how would she talk to you about that and what it means to her to have a daughter that's heading to Oxford? Um, to start, she said, I have three brothers, but she said she wishes she had three more daughters, um, <laughs> which is, I mean, it's such an incredible sentiment for her to express, um, given the legacy of sacrifice that she's been through and that I think Afghan women, um, strong as they are and vocal as they are, have also experienced. But oftentimes, well before I won the roads, um, when we're sitting outside together and it's under the bluest of skies, um, cloudless skies, she tells me to live out all of the things um, that she couldn't and to make the most of the sacrifices that she made. And so I feel that very strongly. And so to see the legacy of, of sacrifice and work and striving, um, but also to see the realization of it manifest on her face when she found out that I had won um, was a moment that I, I don't think words could do justice. It's a moment that I've been working towards my whole life. And it's a moment that I'll continue working towards well into the future. And tell me more about uh, after you've completed your studies at Oxford, you know, how you'll use uh, your human rights work uh, to hopefully contribute to Afghanistan. Is that something on your radar? It is. Um, so I'm thinking right now about whether I'd like to be more of an academic. So whether I'd like to get my doctorate in international development, some subfield of it, or whether I'd like to get my law degree or both. So ultimately, I think we need people working on um, best practice um, transitional justice strategies. So mm -hmm. again, how do we ensure that um, individuals who are at the helm of regimes are not subsequently corroding the legitimacy of government. So my education at Oxford would be very helpful in informing that. I also feel quite strongly about working with our refugee and immigrant communities at home because resettlement uh, transcends borders. So resettlement and peacebuilding mm -hmm. processes extend beyond Afghanistan, especially given how large the Afghan diaspora is. So facilitating um, immigration and refugee law and immigration and refugee resettlement in the United States juxtaposed with my ambition to help rebuild Afghanistan and countries like it um, will be aided by the education I've received in Oxford, but also in Britain overseas, a country that has had a large role in Afghan politics for decades. I don't want to leave your father out of the conversation. As my understanding, he's a frontline worker in this pandemic. Tell us what he does and what it has been like for him. Yeah, um, I appreciate you asking. So my dad is a physician. Um, he's a doctor at Narwhal Hospital, and he's been a doctor since my family came to the United States. Um, so my dad has been seeing COVID patients since March. 
uh, the number of COVID patients dipped a bit over the summer, and now he's seeing quite a few again. So he often comes home with stories about his patients who are in their 90s and who have beaten the odds. He also comes home with stories of patients who are much younger um, and unfortunately were not able to beat the odds. And so my dad is has always been um, a witness of both life and death in its most visceral form, whether it's as a doctor or whether it's as an Afghan civilian living through the war. Um, but that's instilled within him such a reverence for human life, as well as, interestingly, an unabashed optimism about what human beings are capable of. Um, my dad has been one of uh, my foremost advocates um, for my education and for me speaking out in the ways that I have. But he's also an advocate of, of um, the kindness that I tried to exercise in the world. Um, as an anecdote that, that I'll leave on, um, once he went to a store quite a bit away and we bought a box of pomegranates and we drove about 30 minutes away and my dad thought that he hadn't paid uh, for, I think it was three of those pomegranates in that box. So he drove the full 30, 45 minutes back to tell them that. And I was little when that happened and I remember thinking, integrity doesn't need to be this large thing, although sometimes it is. Uh, but it can be very small. And my dad has taught me the virtue of, of small acts of optimism and courage and hope that culminate in, in very large change. Well, I'm sure your parents are very proud of you. Asma Rahimyar, again, a senior at Southern Connecticut State University. She's a CSU's first ever Rhodes Scholar. I should mention, too, that you're also a Truman Scholar. And we thank you so much, Esma, for talking with us today. And good luck. Thank you so much, Lucy. Take care. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk to a ProPublica reporter about so-called midnight regulations that the Trump administration has focused on and trying to rush through before January 20th, when President Trump leaves the White House. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, it's not unusual for outgoing administrations to rush through certain policies before leaving office. That's exactly what's happening in the Trump administration, while President Donald Trump refuses to concede the election. ProPublica has a reporting project that's tracking these so-called midnight regulations, and reporter Isaac Arnstorff joins us now on Zoom. He covers national politics. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us, I know you and your colleagues have a great uh, reporting tool on ProPublica looking at these so-called midnight regulations. Tell us more about this term and what you've been seeing. So the idea of a, a midnight regulation is it sort of happens at the 11th hour. And, and this is very typical in the final months of an outgoing presidential administration um, it happened at the end of the Obama administration, as well as the Bush administration and the Clinton administration. And in some ways, it's natural to kind of have a crunch time before a deadline. I think that's something that everyone can relate to. Um, but there's definitely a concern when this is happening in this context, um, because um, two things. One is that if, if, the, uh, if the regulations are being rushed um, in order to, to get to, uh, under the wire, then... Um, they might not be as as good policy making. And then the other concern is when it's happening after an election in this lame duck period, 
um, it might tie the hands of the incoming president who wants to move things in a different direction that everyone that that a majority of the country voted for. So let's uh, talk more about the point you made about whether this is good policy making. When we think about how agencies come up with rules and regulations, there's a certain public comment period. And what are we seeing with these midnight regulations in terms of what's being rushed through, Isaac? That's right. It's intentionally a very cumbersome process because there's supposed to be a, a high legal burden on agencies to justify why the regulations that they're proposing are needed and are the best policy. And um, what we're seeing here is is that getting compressed. Um, so, for example, it's it's typical to to provide the public sixty days to weigh in on a proposal. And in a lot of cases, we're seeing that reduced to 30 days, which is just a way of trying to move things along faster. Um, we're also seeing um, much shorter uh, periods of review at the White House than is is normal. Um, and that's just another way of trying to speed these up and get them over the finish line. Because a, a regulation that's still pending is very easy for a new administration to just kind of walk away from. But if a regulation gets finalized, then the new administration would have to start this long process all over again, which could take years to, to change through a new regulation. So give us some examples. I couldn't help but laugh at the the, the showerhead example of one of these uh, rules that's uh, being uh, rushed forward. But there are also some very serious ones that have ramifications on a lot of people when we think about uh, the federal death penalty or what's happening with immigration law. So can you walk us through some of them, Isaac? Sure. Well, the, the showerhead one, you're probably thinking of this kind of recurring bit that the president has where he talks about <laughs> water pressure in various bathroom fixtures. And this is kind of the, you know, the legal policy version of that. Um, it would create a loophole for showerheads with multiple fixtures to um, not have to meet the same water efficiency standards. And there's a, a big concern that that's going to lead to increased consumption and waste. Um, and a lot of these um, last minute regulations are uh, in the, uh, the environmental arena are about uh, solidifying a lot of the changes that the Trump administration has made over, over the full four years of um, reducing um, limits on pollution and also making it harder to justify uh, limits on pollution in the future. And those are key examples where the amount of, of research and data collection that goes into those rules means that it, it will be impossible for the Biden administration to change them right away because it'll take years to develop the evidence that they need to do those and, and potentially change them back. Um, immigration is another one that you mentioned where um, a lot of what they're doing is trying to, to formalize policies that they've been observing in terms of various ways to restrict immigration, make it harder to claim asylum, make it harder to get a visa. And by formalizing them as a, as a rule, as a regulation, um, again, and it, it makes it harder for the Biden administration to undo it because the Biden administration would have to go through this whole long process of making a new regulation rather than just uh, rescinding a policy, which it could do much more easily. 
You're hearing Isaac Arnsdorf here on Zoom on Where We Live, a reporter for ProPublica who covers national politics as we hear about uh, some of these uh, midnight regulations that the Trump administration is trying to push forth before January 20th. If you have a question about uh, these uh, these moves by the Trump administration, you can join us, 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, so when I was mentioning the death penalty What's one of the changes that might surprise people to hear? Yeah, so people might have heard about um, the the Trump administration has resumed federal executions for the first time in 17 years. Um, so there have already been several earlier this year, and they're planning several more um, before inauguration. This is significant, obviously, because um, President-elect Biden opposed the death penalty said there won't be any federal executions under his administration. Um, and, uh, you know, this is obviously something that that um, that really can't be undone. Um, and related to that, the, the Trump administration is is changing, is, has just finished changing a policy to give themselves more flexibility in how to conduct these executions. So it's become harder um, for for many states, um, and in this case for the federal government as well, to to find um, drugs for lethal injections that um, are have been acceptable to courts as a uh, method of administering capital punishment. And so, the policy change that the Trump administration just finalized is to uh, allow themselves to use other methods. Of, of execution that are legal in various states, um, such as firing squads or electrocution, which are still on the books in some places. Firing squads. So this is something I think Utah uh, allows, but this is in right, the idea that, that they'd want to look at, at this and make it more widespread for federal crimes, Isaac? My understanding is they're they're just trying to give themselves more flexibility mm -hmm. um, because the lethal injection drugs um, are have either become very hard to get or um, courts have said they they count as cruel and unusual or they don't need have the approvals that they need from the FDA. So what they're what they're trying to do is give themselves other options if they if they can't use lethal injection. Can we talk more about some of the environmental regulations or safety regulations that uh, the Trump administration is looking to loosen? I know you've done a lot of reporting on what's happening with the chicken industry, Isaac. Yeah, so um, this is something that I was looking at a few years ago when the Trump administration started issuing waivers to the speed limit in chicken processing plants. Um, so basically on a case-by-case -case basis, letting um letting chicken factories speed up which um obviously allows the companies to produce more chicken and make more money but um but has very serious safety concerns for both the the health of the chicken um and also the um the risk of injury to the workers in the factories um and this was interesting because uh it, back in 2012 the Obama administration considered raising this speed limit, um, but decided not to because of these very safety concerns. Then the Trump administration came in and said 
that they were going to start issuing these waivers. And now here they are, uh, as expected, saying based on the track record with the waivers, they want to increase it across the board for everyone. Now, this is just a proposal um, that the White House is reviewing. So it would be really unusually lightning fast for them to finalize it before January 20th and for it to take effect before the Biden administration comes in. But uh, a lot of, of safety advocates are worried about that because of, of what we're seeing with a lot of these uh, rules getting waved through quickly. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, the issue of, of when industry uh, does something that inadvertently may kill birds. And what does that mean in terms of penalties that might be loosened if this happens, Isaac? Right. This is another another example of a of an informal policy that they're trying to formalize with a rule so that the Biden administration can't just change it back. Um, and that is to interpret incidental or accidental killings of birds by various industries as um, not a violation of um, of a law protecting um, birds. So, so basically, you're, you know, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to hunt birds. Um, you're not allowed to intentionally kill those birds, but if they happen to, um, happen to die, or if they're put in risk such that they're, it's, it's very, very foreseeable that they will die, um, because of industrial activity, um, this creates a carve out. So there's no liability for that. Can we talk more about who this benefits? In one sense, there may be industry or lobbying groups that are pushing forth uh, these rule changes, Isaac. But you also wrote about how uh, you know ideology tends to be burdensome to some industries uh, in these rule changes. Can you give us some examples? Yeah. So uh, the immigration, like we talked about before, is a really good example of that, where the Trump administration is trying to restrict. Uh, high-skilled worker visas um, because it's trying to restrict immigration across the board. But the tech industry in particular and a lot of other knowledge industries really value those visas and, and say that um, making it them to recruit top global talent is going to hinder growth and innovation. Um, another kind of interesting uh, tension, I think, is, you know, we talked about the shower heads earlier. There's a similar rule for um, for clothes washers, um, again, creating a, a carve out for not having to meet efficiency standards. And this is one where the industry actually opposes that regulatory because basically their position is um, we already offer washing machines with a short cycle option and it's not necessary to create a special category for that but the trump administration uh, is still doing this and it's supported by kind of small government conservative types who just across the board want less government regulation in the economy now, Isaac, you mentioned earlier that these midnight regulations or 11th hour policies, it's not uncommon for outgoing administration. So when we saw what happened with the Obama administration, how did Congress uh, deal with some of the rule changes uh, before his term ended? So there's something called the Congressional Review Act, which is a fast-tracked mechanism where a simple majority in both houses of Congress can repeal a new regulation. And the laws from the 
90s, and it had only been used once until 2017 when Republicans controlled Congress and used it more than a dozen times to strike down midnight regulations from the Obama administration. So obviously this is a tool that Democrats would be eager to use on some of these Trump regulations, but whether they're going to be able to do that depends on who controls the Senate, so the outcome of these two Georgia runoffs, um, or if they're going to be able to, to get a few Republican defectors to get a simple majority in the Senate. I was thinking that there's so much attention on how uh, the new uh, Biden administration will roll out vaccine distribution. There's a lot of issues uh, before the president-elect. You know, how uh, likely is it that the administration is going to be able to have these different agencies look at some of these rule changes that uh, are finalized before January 20th, Isaac? Uh, what will you be watching for uh, in the interim of some of these rule changes that may be harder to push back? Well, there's no question that it, it adds to the to-do list, and I, you know this is this is part of what the Trump administration is trying to do here um, is is um, you know add more to the Biden administration's workload so that they can't proactively they, they have to invest more time and resources in dealing with this as opposed to proactively pursuing their agenda of moving things in in a different direction. Mm. Again, uh, Isaac Arnstorff reports for ProPublica. They've got a, a great uh, reporting tr tool uh, where they're tracking uh, the administration's midnight regulations. We'll be sure to tweet that link out at where we live. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. That's Isaac Arnstorff. Now, after the break, we know New England infrastructure is aging. We find out more about what's leaking from old pipes and how these leaks contribute to global warming. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We know carbon dioxide contributes to global warming, but another worrisome greenhouse gas is methane. And a recent study shows methane leaks are common in some Connecticut cities. Connecticut Public Radio's environment reporter Patrick Scahill covered this story recently, and he joins me now on Zoom. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Lucy. So I wanted to, to start off by this uh, sentence from one of the people you interviewed in your story really jumped out at me. Uh, here she said, methane is like carbon dioxide on steroids. So tell me more about a methane here. Right. So um, as you were saying, uh, we usually think of carbon dioxide, uh, CO2, uh, when it comes to, to climate change. But methane is really sort of this, this, the other greenhouse gas, right? It's, mm. it's colorless. It's odorless. Um, it's actually kind of add the smell into it later. If you smell, you know, rotten eggs while you're walking down the street, um, we'll get more into that later because that's a methane leak. <laughs> um, but methane is emitted during uh, the production of uh, coal, natural gas, and oil. Um, we also see methane emissions coming from livestock and other farming activities um, and from uh, food waste that's uh, decaying in landfills. Um, but for the purposes of what we're talking about today, Lucy, um, methane is the main part of natural gas. Um, natural gas, of course, is used to generate electricity and heat all around the world. But um, if methane leaks into the air uh, from a pipe um, before it's used, uh, it, can, it can absorb the sun's heat, uh, which warms the atmosphere. And uh, methane is actually, to the steroids point, uh, dozens of times more powerful in heating the atmosphere up uh, than CO2 is. 
I liked how you mentioned that it also comes from livestock. We've done a, a show about how uh, methane uh, is emitted when cows pass gas, but today we're focusing on farts, uh, pipes yes. leaking. <laughs> we're f- focusing on pipes uh, leaking methane. And so tell us more about the study. How did researchers figure out uh, that uh, there were so many methane leaks in some of the Connecticut cities? Yeah, so I first got interested in this story um, several years ago uh, because of the work of a a researcher named Nathan Phillips uh, and some of the work he was doing up in Boston. And and, and what Nathan Phillips and his team have been doing um, in different parts uh, of New England, uh, including uh, recently three cities here in Connecticut, Hartford, New London, and Danbury, is um, they're rigging up, it's kind of like a high-tech gas sniffer. So it's this sort of expensive tool. You can put it on a car, uh, you can drive around, um, and the car is also outfitted with a GPS. And whenever that gas sniffer kind of sucks in some methane, uh, the GPS will um, ping the coordinates, right? So what happens is uh, the researchers are able to uh, go down city streets and really sort of develop a a map uh, of where all these leaks are. Um, And that's what they did here in Connecticut. And what they found was, was super interesting. So tell us more about, so looking at Hartford alone, how much methane uh, was leaking when you think about uh, it used uh, to heat homes? Yeah, so a a lot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Tim Keyes, uh, who was one of the study's lead authors, um, he actually had done some of this mapping work back in uh, 2016 in Hartford. Uh, And when he did that, it was showing hundreds of previously uh, unidentified leaks. Uh, When they did it again more recently, um, they found that those leaks were still there. Um, and uh, uh, still prevalent, really. Um, and uh, just to sort of quantify this, um, mm-hmm. in Hartford alone, his team found enough methane leaking from pipes each day uh, to heat more than 200 homes. Um, and then, as we mentioned, you know, they also looked at Danbury and New London. Uh, leaks were found there as well. Mm. Wow, that's really uh, startling. So I guess my next question is, you know, what are utility companies doing about these leaks, Patrick? Yeah, so um, that's a that's a really complex question. So there are regulations that are in place uh, for utility companies uh, to uh, patrol uh, and fix leaks, but a lot of those regulations are based on uh, the utilities either policing themselves or individuals in the community um, reporting a leak. So uh, utilities will go in uh, and they will fix uh, really really big leaks. I think in Connecticut, they're called level three leaks. Not that that really kind of means anything in the abstract, uh, but they're really, really big ones. Um, but some of the lower level leaks, which were many of the leaks that were identified uh, by this recent study, those aren't really policed so much. And, and they're definitely not proactively policed. Um, so uh, there's a lot of those. They're harmful. Um, and uh, I think a lot of advocates are saying more can be done there to sort of curb these, these types of methane emissions. You're hearing Patrick Scahill here on Where We Live on Zoom today, a reporter at Connecticut Public Radio covering science and environment as we learn more about uh, his recent story about uh, methane leaks coming from old uh, natural gas uh, pipes uh, in our state. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so there's another part of your story that uh, was really striking, Patrick, and is that the companies are actually passing the cost of this leaked gas onto consumers. Tell us more. Yeah, so uh, that's right. Um, The way this works is um, gas that's leaked on the way to the consumer can be charged off collectively to consumers by the company. Um, So so that's raised uh, in the advocacy community, the environmental advocacy community, a a lot of 
questions, right? Which is, you know, why would a utility company be incentivized to to fix a problem if they can collectively charge to the customers uh, the cost of, of losing this gas? Um, so that could be one possible way to maybe get some more attention to this issue. But, um, you know, I, I think some of the, the broader questions here, Lucy, are, you know, mm-hmm. it, is it is it worth investing the time and energy to fix all of these leaks now? Is it is it worth spending all the money to to dig up these pipes and, and do all this work when when the state is really trying to reorient itself towards uh, alternative forms of energy, forms of energy like solar and wind? Um, maybe some of the investments are are more better suited there than. Uh, you know, trying to retrofit uh, a an infrastructure that that might be going away in ten or twenty years. Mm, that's a really important point. And you've spoken to a lot of different researchers uh, in and advocates in your story, including, I, I believe, uh, someone who talked about that in, initial uh, point that you made about this idea of moving away from fossil fuels. Yeah, and, and you know, um, one researcher who I spoke to, um, Lucy, was uh, Jessica Transick. She was an associate professor. She is an associate professor at MIT. Um, she really liked the study. She said it was advancing the science of sort of how we pinpoint these leaks, which are just really tough to track, and and, and as I was saying, they're really pricey to fix. Um, but um, she was saying, you know, there's a lot we don't know here, but but we we should sort of embrace that. So maybe we can hear that clip. We shouldn't be kind of hamstrung by that uncertainty. Instead, we can take that uncertainty into account and say, okay, that's a risk. This means we may need to accelerate our transition plan away from natural gas. Mm. You know, going back to something you'd said earlier about uh, the smell, uh, you know, is it something that, you know, people can notice uh, around uh, where they live if, if if there is a methane leak, Patrick? Yeah, so so the smell is actually injected into the process uh, later when when methane's produced, and you know mm-hmm. you've you've probably smelled it, I'm sure, when you you're out walking around or, or you know going down the street, uh, kind of smells like rotten eggs, kind of gross. Um, and so yes, I mean people will smell that and they will report leaks. But I think you know one of the the main points uh, the researchers hope comes from this study is that. Um, the researchers are, are essentially trying to give um, states and utility companies a toolkit to to proactively police for these leaks. They're saying, mm-hmm. you know, here's here's the tools you need. Um, yeah, the the little gas sniffer is kind of expensive, but for a major utility company, it's not really that expensive. You can put it on a car. You can even put it on a bike. You can drive around. They're making the computer code open source for um, you know companies to process the data once they take it in. And I think, you know, Jessica Transick um, and other researchers who were looking at this this Connecticut study were, were, were hopeful that this type of work does really kind of raise the awareness of the prevalence of these leaks um, and how making them more um, uh, widely known would be important to communities that are directly affected um, by this because, again, you know, methane's har- harmful to the climate, it's harmful to human health as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, before we end, Patrick, you had mentioned uh, the states has a goal to move away from fossil fuels, but I was just thinking about, I believe under the Malloy administration, uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, really depending on natural gas and thinking about the infrastructure and piping that's already going to people's homes. And how does that make this issue more complicated? Oh, it makes it so much more complicated. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, you know, energy policy is always a moving target, right? And, and sort of... Um, 
uh, marrying uh, uh, politics to that can, can be re really tough. Um, but you're right. You know, for years, the state had put forward that natural gas is, is a bridge fuel to a clean energy future. Um, recently, uh, Katie Dykes, the, the head of uh, Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, uh, reversed course on that and said, you know, natural gas is, is not the bridge fuel anymore. We, we need to get off of it. We need to move to more cleaner types of fuel. Um, so just getting back to the earlier point about, you know, where do we want to spend the money? Um, do we want to spend the money fixing all these leaks? Maybe some of them, if they're really large and really problematic. Um, maybe we want to address leaks that are elsewhere on the supply chain, leaks that are happening when gas is actually um, uh, produced, when it's you know fracked out of the ground, uh, or leaks that happen when it's um, transmitted uh, on, on large-scale pipelines across the U.S. Um, so... A lot of stuff is coming out of this just in terms of where we want to spend our money and what we want our priorities to be. Um, but it'll be interesting to track sort of, you know, how the politics does does just change on this as Connecticut moves forward. I should mention that the commissioner of the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, uh, Katie Dykes, She's going to be on where we live uh, later this month, and we'll be sure uh, to talk with her about this. But I want to thank Patrick Scahill for joining us today. Talk about a really important story. We wanted to make sure it didn't, uh, that it was on your radar. Again, uh, he reports uh, on science and the environment. And we'll tweet out a link to his story about uh, methane leaks uh, at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, or on Twitter at where we live. Patrick, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Coming up on Thursday, we're going to, have to be talking about diabetes in our community. We hope you can join us.